I'm Derek O'Connor and I'd like to welcome you to the Directors in Dialogue series of podcasts presented by the Screen Directors Guild of Ireland. In this episode we're chatting to Ema Reynolds who enjoyed a hugely successful career as a film editor before becoming an acclaimed documentary filmmaker in her own right. Her most recent film, The Farthest, charting the iconic Voyager space mission, recently won an International Emmy Award for Outstanding Science and Tech Documentary. For the purposes of this conversation, I'm going to begin by asking you to just introduce yourself and tell me what you do. Um, my name is Ema Reynolds. I'm a, recently enough, a f- film director of documentary, feature documentaries, and uh, formerly and, and sometimes still now uh, a film editor as well. I've been an editor for over 25 years. And what was your, I suppose, begin with your route into film editing, and then we'll talk how that evolved into making your own documentaries. Okay, I um, I wanted to work in film um, from when I was in school, joined the Film Society and uh, thought film was extraordinary. So uh, kind of tried to hatch a little route, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And uh, so I did a regular degree in Trinity in uh, physics and there joined the Film Society where, um, you know, making small, making short films on, you know, with short ends from RTE stock and, and and worked with some people there, became friends with them, worked with some people there that carried on and became colleagues and friends of mine like Alan Gilson and Martin Mahan. Michael Dwyer was there and uh, the fir- first film I worked on actually was starred Anne Enright who went on to win the booker. So yeah, kind of worked in film society there and, and tried to figure out what I might like to do in film, really had no idea what, what the jobs were. And that short film that I mentioned, which was directed by Alan called Sheila, and was being edited in RTE um, by a film editor called Martin Duffy. And when I, when I went in, you know, they let the trainees go in and, and kind of see what the story is. So I went in to see what was up and I thought editing was like extraordinary from the moment I, moment I walked in. I thought it was just miraculous, you know. So kind of headed for editing as, as a career, as an idea of how I might um, explore uh, that creative journey. And... Martin took me on as a, a free, he became freelance and he took me on as an assistant editor and I trained up. So trained with him and then subsequently with the amazing Shay Mary Doyle for, uh, I was an assistant editor for seven years and then um, cut my first feature, which was Ailsa, directed by Paddy Brannock. And um, yeah, that was how I got into being a proper, you know, fully fledged editor, cut drama and feature documentaries and some TV drama for you know, a long time and then um, kind of forged another little plan out and started directing feature documentaries. I've directed some drama en route. I did a couple of shorts and I also did a TV drama series. But for one reason or another, um, some of it practical, like I was being offered editing work that I really didn't want to turn down and I was very intrigued by. So I, I didn't continue editing or directing at that point. Also, I, I think... I possibly wasn't ready for it. You know, it, it came in a moment in my, my development that I wasn't ready for it. So a couple of years later then, I got the opportunity to direct uh, my first feature documentary, which I co-directed with John Murray, which was called Here Was Cuba. And then um, subsequent to that, directed recently directed The the Farthest, which is a feature documentary about the Voyager spacecraft. And I'm now in prep and due to start shooting in two weeks, my third feature documentary. Well, thank you for your time. And you're very busy in terms of your route into being a director, going from editing to directing, presumably all that time spent working with other people's um, footage and other people's stories, um, really able enabled you to hone your own skills as a storyteller and as a filmmaker. What would be the main thing 
that all those years working in editing and working with filmmakers, it's a very particular relationship between the director and the editor. What did that give you that you were then able to bring to your own process? Well, you know, I'm really, really grateful that I spent all that time as an editor. I think it's it's an amazing um, proving ground and learning ground for all the processes that are involved when you do then become a director. But in specific, as you mentioned there, the strongest thing I think you learn is the storytelling. You know, the editor is really at the the cutting edge, the forefront of the story in the film, the whole unit. You know, where did the piece works as a as as a flow. So I was really, I, I think I, you know, and you test it in all the formats, you know, when I was on featured docs and featured dramas, you know, that there's different things you're learning all the time and you're testing you know, all the little blind alleys and, you know, dog legs, you know, I think you're, you're learning and honing those skills all the time. And, and I really feel I benefited massively from it when I came to direct myself. But I think you're also learning, uh, you know, in a very practical way, you're learning an awful lot about all the pieces that are involved in any film, the cinematography, the sound, the music, the continuity, the, you know, like there's so much that the editor gets to see you know, try, tried and tested on all these other films with, with success or, or degrees of success, you know. So you're learning in a very um, subliminal way. You're learning a huge amount about the process and the practical nature of film. And I think thirdly, what you're learning massively in the editing room is about relationships, you know, how many voices there are to be accommodated in, in any film, you know, from the, the, cre- the, you know, the core creatives like the producer, the director, the writer, and then the, the other levels of, the, you know, the funders, the, the parties that are interested, the distributors, you know. So you're privy to a lot of those conversations when you're in a cutting room. They're all happening around you. And you realize how much of the, the work is about the relationships that are built, how much listening is required, the, the mutual respect, the, you know, the, the, the endless conversations, you know. So I, I, I think as an editor, I, I was really lucky to have experienced so much of that while sitting uh, in a dark room, you know, absorbing what was happening with other films. And was that always something that you were working towards, was to be able to tell your own stories? Or was there just a certain leap where the right project just came your way? Or what was your what was the point at which you were like, okay, because you said you still kept the two careers in parallel for a while. Would that be the case? Yeah, so uh, there was not, a, a, there was no master plan, but there was a kind of a, a, a an idea of a master plan somewhere. I, I was definitely hoping that I would end up directing, but I, I didn't really have a, a a plot. You know, I didn't have a a, a, a direction that I could under, I could tell you about now. I said I there was come a couple of false starts and a couple of hiccups and a couple of reasons why I didn't pursue things when maybe opportunities arrived. And I think when I look back, I think it was it, it was um, yeah, mostly to do with me, just mostly to do be, me not being ready. Um, I having I didn't have a lot of confidence. I was a pretty confident editor, but I didn't have a lot of confidence as a director. And you really have to, you know, stick your neck out and take, you know, take control and, and be prepared to put your head over the parapet. And I, I, I guess I wasn't ready at that point. But so after after a number of those journeys, and I was still, you know, pretty strong in my editing role and my editing career. Um, I started working with John Murray, who co-directed my first feature doc with me. I started working with him as an editor and him as director on a number of feature documentaries. And we just got along like a house on fire and we're very, very 
simpatico in terms of our relationship and how we work together and how we under, under, understood each other. So out of the blue, he asked me would I co-direct Here Was Cuba with him. And <laughs> it makes me laugh now because it had never, even though I'd cut quite a lot of feature documentary and TV documentary, I had only thought about directing drama. I had never thought I would direct feature documentaries I, and I can't explain that I literally had never occurred to me until he sat me down over lunch and said would I come on board as feature as his co-director and I thought I thought it sounded great and I was like, oh okay yeah I thought that would be something interesting so I agreed to do that and a bit like walking into the editing room 10 or 15 years early whatever it was the minute I started co-directing the, the feature doc with, with John I just thought this was you know this is what I was to do. Like I just, I'm I, as a person, I'm very political. I'm very interested in the world. I'm very um, passionate about things, and I'm very. I, I like a lot of stimulation and reading, and you know. And suddenly you're in this world where that's your job, you know, to to learn a new a new subject, to jump in, learn all about it, talk to people, find out about it, find a way to express it visually. So I just, I just thought it was fantastic. So, I kind of stumbled in in a haphazard fashion. <laughs> And then, so when you feature documentary making, it's a very particular skill set, but also it's a very particular form where, you know, there's so many different routes into it, but also the options are so endless in terms of the amount of material that you can accumulate over the, you know, if you're working with a feature narrative, you're working from a script. So essentially you're diving in without a script and you're finding, I presume there's a large degree to which you're finding the film as you go, because you're not necessarily sure what you're going to get in terms of the material from your interviewees or the story you're trying to tell. So give me an example with something like The Furthest, how much, you know, for how long is the finished feature? It's how many minutes? It's 122 hours. So how many, foot, how much footage went into? Yeah, so on The Furthest, um, I think there was upwards of a thousand hours of archive and we did 32 interviews and they were all about three hours long. So there was, a, you know, a, a huge amount of interview, mm -hmm. huge amount of um, archive and... And then we shot a lot of visual, you know, supportive material too. So I didn't cut the farthest, thankfully. Mm -hmm. I had cut Here Was Cuba myself. And um, whilst I really enjoyed it, mm -hmm. I really wanted on my second film to have the experience of, you know, the the proper forged in the jungle relationship the director gets in the cutting room with an editor with mm -hmm. a separate voice. So... Uh, Tony Cranston, who edited The Farthest, who amazing BAFTA ace-winning editor, who's also my husband, so we got him at a cheap, <laughs> cheap rate. He he cut The Farthest with me for me, and uh, so when I think about the thousands of hours of archive, I, mm -hmm. I also remember that there was a lot of me saying, "Now oh, you carry on and watch all of that while I while <laughs> I go for a run, and you know we'll take we'll take it in." So I had the really all the benefits of somebody else, you know, watching it with me, watching it, you know more thoroughly than I did mm -hmm. and but you've been offering that, you've been that I've soldier. been that soldier yeah, and, yeah. and I really appreciated what he brought to it because it you know it, it requires a huge amount of dedication and uh, storytelling for him for him to jump in and understand what what might be jewels for me and for us to use in the cut so we had a very very good working relationship and um yeah in terms of how much material there was I, there I had done a lot of scripting before um we reached the cutting room you know but as you say once you start interviewing and, and you know the contributors you know they say the, they they go right when you thought they were going to go left and you're you're able to enjoy the characters in in situ 
there was a lot of obviously massive amount of redrawing of the story and this and the the structure that happened in the cut. So uh, we had a long cut, and it was great to be able to, you know, it was a really. I don't work. I don't like to use narration. Um, so really building the films in situ in the cutting room from the material, the the interview we get from the material, the archive. You know, trying to tell the story that way. So it's extremely rewarding, but it's extremely intense and hard work. And how long was that first assembly, that first cut of the film? First cut was three and a half hours long. Okay, so even yes. that we got it down to two, and um, which people still think is long, but I think is a flies by because <laughs> yes, when you when you compare it to what we you had, should have seen the three and a half yeah, hour. Exactly, yeah, you should exactly. have seen when we had a thousand hours. We had a lot of um, we had a lot of time, a lot of a lot of screenings I had in film festivals. Uh, people you know who'd be fans of the film would would ask us to release the three and a half hour version, you know, on, on a link or something or on a DVD extra, you know. There was a lot of story that got left behind, unfortunately. Well, well this is the thing these days, because it feels like a golden age for documentary. There's such a massive appetite for it. And somewhere like Netflix has capitalized on that. And they're evolving the documentary medium through these serialized documentary series. Yeah. And they're also able to give a fantastic platform to, you know, to all sorts of kind of niche genre, documentary genres that haven't had an audience before. Could you go, do you look at it and go, we could go back and do the six hour series version have you looked at different ways into it or does that form of telling stories and making documentaries appeal to you is that something that you'd like to explore i don't know i certainly don't think i would want to go back to unpick the farthest and expand it um and maybe that's just this moment in time because you know it was four years from script to screen and then another year of of traveling with it and showing it and screening it so you know i was ready when it was i was ready at the end of that to to move on to another film move on with my life um we certainly did talk about was there a you know an opportunity you know it keeps hitting anniversaries the spacecraft is superstar little spacecraft that keeps knocking it out of the park in terms of human achievement and scientific achievement so I, maybe there's a chance we'll revisit it at a, at a, at a future point but uh was your question, would I be interested in those kind of serial docos? Perhaps, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not currently exploring anything. Um, but yeah, sounds fun. I like making of a murderer, the first series. It's um, it's also, it's interesting, just the, the farthest, it's had such a, you know, it's had such a global reach. And just even from the very outset, when you were having your initial wave of festival screenings, there was a, you know, you could see people responding to the film it's had an amazing journey and that journey seems to be still continuing now there's still people finding the film it's still traveling um go back to the beginning to the first idea of wanting to make the film like um, do you go right away do you go this is something i want to make a film about and is there a part of you goes you know this is something as well you have confidence there's an audience for an appetite for what was your way into it in terms of how it informs what you're going to make because if you're going to spend four years with something presumably you want to make sure that it's going to reach an audience and we were we were pretty confident from the start that there was an audience for it um because um you know in the sense of films about space are you know there there is a niche audience and the, the challenge was to make a film that would maybe climb out of a niche audience and reach a, a, a broader audience. And myself and John Murray and Claire Strong, who were the, the two producers on it, we were very keen that we would make a film that had a broad appeal, you know. So I was, we were looking at a film that would reach all age groups, you know, all genders, and not only talk to science geeks, you know, that would actually talk to, uh, you know, kids who don't know anything about science or, you know, people who might come to it from a different angle. And the the, the spacecraft had had that 
sort of inherently in the story because it was this amazing spacecraft that achieved so much in hum you know in scientific terms but it also had this little golden record on it which had this kind of time capsule of human life so it had this philosophical bent as a little spacecraft that it was talking to how would we communicate with aliens is there anyone out there what would you say if you had a chance to describe your planet if this spacecraft outlives us you know we might be long dead and the no trace of us in the universe apart from this little spacecraft so the film because it was this particular spacecraft had the opportunity i think to talk to a broader audience than just the science audience and i wanted to make i wanted to make a film about space and science that would talk to space talk about space and science the way i felt about it you know which is not just cold hard facts and then we got there on this date and then we found out these pieces of information about the chemical makeup of this moon but they would actually talk to the you know the wonder that people feel when they look up at the night sky that those feelings of joy and awe I think that contemplation of space evokes in us all I think everyone has that it's a common feeling people standing in their backyard and looking up at the moon or looking up at the sky and going getting that rush of why am I here what's it all for so the right from the start the film had all those ambitions and we were very lucky that our funding partners and all that were on board with that idea. And I was really lucky that John and Claire were up for that. And, you know, we weren't trying to shoehorn it into a kind of a, you know, let's let's stick to a narrower brief, you know, that might be more surefire. You know, could you guarantee that a film about space that went off on these romantic, you know, sidebars about beauty and all that would actually reach an audience? So you said there's no guarantees. So I think you just have to go for your instincts. And our instincts were that this had broad appeal. And, uh, you know, the film that it ended up was quite different from, you know, the, the treatment. The same but different, you know. Like, we, 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 we were so fortunate that the people we interviewed were were game for the philosophizing, you know, that they this, these scientists and engineers wanted to go down that road with us we were so we were so lucky Claire often tells a story that in research I said we need to find um poets and philosophers and songwriters uh, you know and novelists who can be interviewed who will talk about space in this kind of esoteric philosophical romantic way because we may not get the scientists and the engineers to want to do that but then as soon as we met all these people who were central to the story they were you know space is their great love you know and and communication and and expressing what makes humans amazing you know and and the joy and the thrill of discovery so we threw out any plan we had for you know philosophers to come in from outside and 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 so you know it was a real process and we stuck very closely to our instincts in terms of what might work and uh you know i think i think it, in the main it did and then for you as a maker, it's a voyage of discovery too, because presumably you have a basic, you got to have a curiosity about people to begin with, and you have a curiosity about your subject, but then you immerse yourself completely. Did you carry out all the interviews yourself? I did, yeah. Yeah, and uh, they are, they're something I'm extremely proud of, um, because they were, each interview was like running a marathon. We did very long interviews, over three hours with most, I think all of them, if not 90% of them. And... You know, that's a very intense process. Um, but also I, I, I kind of didn't work. I, I didn't like to sit there with notes. I didn't want them thinking, oh, now she's going to ask me about Jupiter. And then we go, you know, I, I agreed in advance and, and I'm doing it on my next film as well with the contributors that we would just talk as though we were just 
two people in a room in a pub try to forget the camera and go off piste as much as they wanted you know I'd be led by where they went with, with obviously I'd have the idea that I the certain story beats I want to return to or cover and so it, it involved a huge amount of intensity a huge amount of pre-research a huge amount of attention in the moment and I, I'm very, very happy with the interviews. I really feel that the, one of the great strengths of the film is the characters of the scientists and engineers really comes across. You know, they're so relaxed. They're so open. They're so willing to engage you in their, you know, their spe specific journey, their specific role on the spacecraft. And they're so lively and so warm and so friendly. And I really feel that's one of the shocks when you watch the film. You don't expect a science film to be so... So human, you know, so, uh, yeah, I did a huge amount of research and, and, and worked really hard on the interviews and, and, and they were joyous because they were surprising, you know. And that's, and you almost, you get to the point where you, I suppose, trust in the process. Like in the end, you trust that you're creating something that has to get across what you want to get, but at the same time, it's got to be reflective. It's not a, it's again, it's not a narrative thing with a beginning, a middle and an end. And I think that's the kind of part of the joy of the film is the reflectiveness that's yeah. in it as well. So. Yeah. And I, I, I knew, you know, and maybe this is because I had been an editor. I am an editor. I also knew that, you know, it was going to leave a lot of work in the edit to try to then hatch or plot the, the plot <laughs> from these sprawling philosophical, you know, beautiful interviews. Um, but I was confident that Tony and I could do that, you know, if if we just, if we let the, the rope out, you know, and people could really feel that they could, could talk openly, you know. So it is trusting the process in the moment in the interviews and trusting the process in the edit that there, is, there will be a way to, to stitch it all together. And in terms of then, you know, because you're not working to a prescribed script, how much in, in terms of the film evolving, do you then introduce it? Do you show to people? How much input do you take on board where you're trying to get to the point where you have a film that you're happy with, but also communicates itself to an audience? How's that process? Well, we did we did do you know multiple screenings, including test screenings, uh, to see um, to see where we're communicating, to see where we're reaching the the emotional beats. You know, that was it was it communicating? Obviously, uh, firstly, and um, was it. Was it working on all the the kind of the, the philosophical, emotional, factual, scientific levels? So we, we, we took it out of, uh, you know, of the cutting room and put it up in front of people, you know, at a, at a certain point in the edit to, to test it and uh, responded accordingly. And it's a long time for to be working on a single project for four years. Applying this prism of how do you actually translate this to a career? Um, what way does it work in terms of financing a project like this? You know, are you working to a a tight budget with a small crew um do you have to keep everything going by do you take on are you still working as an editor do you still have to kind of sustain a parallel career to underwrite a career as a film like well how does it work for you yeah so it was four years script to screen but i was only full-time on it for the last two years mm. and once we started prepping and went into the shoot so for when 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 i wrote the treatment then john went off and was raising the funds for two years and he got a lot of interest uh, and commitments very quickly but it still takes there was multiple funders a lot of time to close it and all that so and how many uh, different funding elements came into it uh there was in a, there was the irish film board and section 481 and rte in ireland in the us there was pbs and our co-funder tangle bank studios um 
And then we also had money from Storyville, BBC Storyville, from ZDF and Arte, you know, and Swedish TV. So there was a lot of uh, parties. So that took a long time to put together. So while he was putting the package or, the, you know, building the possibility of making the film, I was carrying on editing. I think I edited three or four more films in that period, whilst also keeping an eye on when we might shoot it. Cause we were going for a particular anniversary, um, coinciding the American TV broadcast with the, the launch of the, the, the spacecraft. So we had a ticking clock, but I had to go off, you know, and, and keep earning a living while, the, you know, the, the model was being put together. And then I was, yeah, I was only full time on it for, for two years. So, yeah, I, how do you work a, a, as a filmmaker? Yeah, it's, it's it's tough. You know, it's 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 tough to keep. Yeah, I'm learning because I'm new at it. Um, and I haven't since I made the farthest. I've only edited one thing because I'm trying to develop um, this, the, the film I'm starting in two weeks, but also a number of feature dramas coming down the track. So I've, I've understood. <laughs> it took me a while to figure it out that you actually have to have a lot of things in the pipe. Uh, and you're, so you're you're planning ahead two or three years that things might stack up if you're lucky um, and how to earn a living as a director. I haven't quite figured that out yet. I'm lucky that I'm on a film now, but, um, you know, it's been since I finished the farthest and starting this, it's been a little, uh, you know, unsatisfactory. And then that festival journey, you know, you've been to a lot of festivals and the film continues to travel the world. Um, that's a presumably something you kind of have to underwrite yourself as yeah. well like it's time consuming you're traveling and I think it's something that a lot of filmmakers don't talk about is that they I have heard people in the past say like you lose a year because you're spending a year you could do just festivals constantly you could just travel with something but it doesn't necessarily lend itself to the next film getting made or it doesn't it kind of impedes upon your life yeah. and your work process have you how has that process of traveling with the film been has it been beneficial or is it something that you have to kind of again it's another element you have to take on board with the trying to earn a living and trying to get the next one done like it, it, it it's a really complicated decision making process because traveling with the film and screening it is one of the great joys you know you've made it it's been so hard to make it you've you know been on this lonely isolating journey in some ways hoping that you've made something that will communicate and then taking it in front of an audience seeing it in cities all over the world which is with the farthest I went I went so many wonderful countries and you're seeing it in so many cultures and the response to it is is pure joy in terms even if the audience don't quite get it or quite like it you learn so much about your craft you learn so much about what you're trying to do you know it, I I could not have avoided that because I found it so addictive in some ways, but you're totally underwriting it yourself. And um, in in a lot of ways, it's a waste of your creative time because you're, this film's already made. You should be moving on to the next one. So I half, like about three quarters way through my, you know, tour of the world, I met a director who was on, I think she was on her third or fourth film. And she had she had only she was only going to two or three festivals with with that film, and then she was moving on. And she said, "Oh, you're on your first one." It was my first solo one, the farthest was. And she said, "Oh, I did the same on my first one. You know, I travelled everywhere, but now I don't anymore." So maybe after a while, you start realizing if you're going to have a coherent career that's going to keep you busy and and paying your mortgage <laughs> or whatever, that you actually have to not do that amount of excessive traveling but I, I found it so brilliant but of course and there's other there's other less literal parts to it you're making a lot of friends you're making you're meeting a lot of other filmmakers on the road that you're so you're sharing 
the stories of how people get funded, how people get out to different festivals, what the responses are. Maybe you're understand. It's kind of a bush telegraph in terms of people are talking about where you might go for funding for something else. You know, so it definitely has a lot of you, you know, usefulness as well. You're making contacts. You're making contacts with the festivals. Um, so it's not wasted time. It's just unpaid time. So mm-hmm. investing, I have a investing in yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But you got the house already, so that's right. yeah, that's yeah, so okay. <laughs> and then the road to it, like, because it's been so extraordinary, well received, and then the Emmy is the most recent yeah, accolade. Um, how does that actually translate into? Presumably, it it opens doors, it creates context. Is there a certain space for you and your producer that you have to actively capitalize upon this? Do you always have to have that? You know, how do we propel? Like, presumably, it gives you a certain cachet that you can then parlay into future projects. Is that the case? And you found that everything that's happened so far has it really opened doors? Uh, certainly, the Emmy, and that's only very recently, it has, it seems to be some sort of magic word that people, you know, now there's an absolute trust that. Perhaps you know what you're doing or, you know, the, the, the film will be of a certain quality. Suddenly, you know, future films seem to ha- have attracted that idea, which is very nice that you don't feel like you're having to to defend or project, you know, pitch it a, a, as as actively as you might have had to before. But I don't know if that's something that lasts for a long time or it lasts for six weeks after the award or you're only as good as your last film or, you know. Like I'm now starting, as I said, I'm starting shooting my new film in two weeks. I think I think it's going to be reset back to the beginning all over again. So even though you've got two or three films that have been well received, I think you're still the difficult second album or, you know, you're still yeah. going to be in that same territory. You're still starting from scratch. I think so. I think yeah. so. And, and I kind of like that. I wouldn't like to think you're you're going to go out into the world, you know, think, trailing your, you know, whatever. Emmy in one hand, camera in the yeah. other. <laughs> you know, that, that, that doesn't sound right. Like... What's interesting about the work is the work itself, you know, mm-hmm. doing good work, being invested in it, being curious about it, investigating something very specific on its own terms. And and all of the work, all of the other work you've done falls away. It's it's informing the next piece. It's informing the future pieces. But this is still itself. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't know if it's opening doors. It's I've gotten a lot of people contacting my agent and, you know, there's been a there's been a, a bit of chatter. But because I'm in the middle of another film, it's uh But it's a nice leavener as yeah. well that you've got something to yeah. get stuck into. Yeah, exactly. Do you so people who are interested in um directing and say directing in this case, say feature documentaries, um, you found a particular route into it. But what are your lessons learned and what is the advice that you would give to someone who is maybe from the outside in who would want to, you know, approach this? Oh, uh I, you know, lessons learned, I'd say I, I do find myself, I'm, I'm, my particular style um, is pretty intensive, production intensive, requires, uh, you know, a lot of prep and a lot of focus. I, I, I admire people or I dream about doing a film that's, let's say I saw the um, Lonely Battle of Thomas Reed last week and they did an awful lot of I mean, it was years, but they did an awful lot of fly on the wall shooting where they just were with the character and watching him. I kind of dream about that now, you know, doing a kind of a a, a type of film that maybe spreads out over a longer time. 
and you're just letting it unfurl in front of you. I don't seem to have made those yet or, or, or the next one isn't like that either. You know, there is, there's a lot of archive, a lot of scripting, a lot of story, a lot of but that's, interviewing. But that's documentary filmmaking though, yeah. isn't it really? Depending on what your, your yeah. subject is. Absolutely, so they're both, they're both the same. I just yeah. do dream about making something which I loved the Lonely Battle and, and they also had done some drama inserts and all that. So it was a really complicated film, but I, I long for a kind of a fly on the wall type tumble through a story. Um, however, I, I'm not planning anything like that and I haven't been, you know, so maybe my instincts are more more like the sort, the sort of films I'm actually doing. So well, well, I don't know what my advice would be. You know, it's, 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 it, there's a lot of documentaries getting made I was at one festival two or three years ago, actually with Here Was Cuba, and I think 90% of the films that were there were kind of citizen filmmaker. You know, they were people on the streets of Basra or, or in Syria or wherever, just with a small camera making them, you know, and I I think those films are fantastic, but I just don't have the, the wherewithal to do that myself. So um, I, I, what's great about documentary filmmaking now is that all bets are off and anything goes. So as you say, with Netflix, there's all these funding streams through Amazon and HBO, and there's all these ways that you can make films, lo-fi or hi-fi, going straight to SVOD or planning for the cinema, all the TV companies are investing in, in types of documentaries, you know. So if you have a great story, if you have a great story or a great character, I think, uh, you know, the field is open for you to make it now. What are the key relationships? It sounds like the producer-filmmaker one is key because they're the person who are making the deals, they're driving everything, but also even above and beyond the process of making the film, they continue with the journey and they bring it to audience, be that through working with distributors and all the different platforms globally. Um, what And you talk about your relationship uh, with your editor is crucial as well. Um, how important is that? And then also in terms of being, you've, the majority of your work is here in Ireland. You know, you've been able to carve out a career for yourself in Ireland. Um, how hard is it? How hard is it to find those people, and how key are those relationships? Well, it's not. I don't think it's hard to find um, the key creatives here. The people are working at an extreme, extraordinarily high level here. Along with Tony, my editor, I have a very tight and long-term relationship. Kate McCulloch, my cinematographer with Joe Fowler, my designer, with Ray Harmon, my composer, you know, I, and really those relationships, they travel from film to film and your short ends gets better, your understanding what each other is doing gets better. So massively um, fertile ground here in terms of, of key creatives. Um, producer, I this is my first time working with Marcy Films on my new film with, Mar with Alamar and John Wallace are producing my new film. My other two films were produced by John Murray and The Farthest with Claire Strong. So, you know, sometimes with in terms of producers, which is, uh, it's certainly one of the key relationships, possibly the key one, you know, this is the person or people that are going to be with on the journey with you from the start to the end, you know, all the way raising the funds, inventing the film, dreaming it up, getting the funding, going through the shoot, all the way to distribution, festivals release and all that you know so the amount of trust needed the amount of um respect needed uh open communication knowing that it's going to get tough in places and you'll be able to honestly talk through it's huge and and yet it's 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 kind of risky so 
as I said, I had a relationship before with John Murray. So when I did those two films with him, I, I trust we trusted each other and it was very, very good. This is a brand new relationship I'm having with new producers and I'm really enjoying it and it's going really well. And I'm set on prepping three more films or you know involved in three more films and they're with uh, new producers again so in, in a funny way the producer relationship is, is the most interesting question because you are having to possibly unless perhaps you're you're a director and a producer team like Andrew and and Ken you know the, Andrew Freeman and Ken Wardrop you know they have a, a long-term relationship they've developed over time Directors and producers are trying to find each other. You know, it's a little bit of speed dating. You know, people are trying to find common ground, people that they can work with, that they can understand. And uh, it's so key. And yet it's it, it can be so new and frightening. But uh, I, I'm I, I think, you know, I think respect is is the key. And I learned in terms of producing, for example, this time around, I'm much more interested in the budget than I used to be before, because I actually think that a director can work better when they understand the parameters, when they know what's on the table, you know, when they're better informed. Um, so when you start seeing budgets a bit more clearly, then, oh, let me know if I've got enough for that. I think it also breeds respect for the producer's role because they, you know, they're the person, they're the people wearing so much of the, the the realities of it you know when I'm thinking I'm sitting around with Kate and Joe and Tony talking about we'll film that we'll you know you're, you're in this amazing creative open space and yet the producer who also is in that space with you in terms of the dreams of the film then out of the film they've also got their their hands in the in the dirty business you know the dirty end of it in terms of what we can afford what we can't do so yeah it, it's a uh, I don't remember what your question was. So, you know, is is it easy to do that here? I think there's amazing people. It seems here. like it seems yeah. like an interesting, but like your your films have a a global context, and again, they're not Irish themed, but you're very much an Irish filmmaker, and you're able to work, and you've worked with other extraordinary Irish filmmakers. It seems like it's a kind of a a fertile time and an interesting time to be here. Um, again, we're. I suppose, a couple of decades into the industry itself and even going back to, you know, Ailsa, it's mm -hmm. like it's 25 years later, yeah. you know, um, it's come a long way. I don't think, like, I think we're at a time when you don't actually have to go away now, you know, which is, is brilliant. The skill sets are here. The relationships are here. People can actually base themselves here and make the moves. You might have to go away to shoot something or, but actually that that is possible in a way that it wasn't yeah on Ailsa or I went down you know it was it was a tiny baby industry and there was an absolute expectation that were you to have some sort of global career or some sort of international career you were going to have to go to London at the very minimum if not LA I think that's different now and we'll see yeah and then in terms of in terms of the playing field for filmmakers to just bring that work to a, a global again from making it here to a global audience has this been a great learning curve in terms of now you've been able to take this story that's very personally you know it's something that came from yourself mm -hmm. and bring it to is it like are you excited to see where you can go with the next one tell me a little bit about the next one or can you yeah i can yeah um the next one is called songs for while i'm away and it's a feature documentary about the uh, life and work of philip linnett who was the lead singer of thin lizzie um so it's a it's a Ostensibly, it's a rock doc, but much more interested in, uh, you know, uh, a tender, celebratory kind of compassionate portrait of a human, of a man, a writer, a father, you know, the journey from 
disadvantaged mixed race child in in you know pretty poor part of Dublin in the in the fifties to being you know Ireland's probably first ever bona fide rock star you know and and his journey as a songwriter as a poet as an artist and as a performer to uh, a, a sadly a, a, you know a, an early death you know um a sad ending and but he has you know his songs are there's a lot of kind of known about his big rock songs and the the big thin lizzy sound but actually he had an amazing uh, he was an amazing lyricist and amazingly interesting songs in there that are possibly not as well known so we're taking a kind of a you know say a tender look through the man and the artist and yeah trying to pitch it as well it's got a huge audience here hopefully and a lot of fans here will be interested but Thin Lizzy and and Phil are known in all over Europe all over the states they toured you know so we are trying to make film that a film again that a bit like the farthest that would appeal to the fans and then will reach outside of you know it's fan based and talk to people who may not know the music may not know the story so yeah I think the farthest has given me the confidence to think actually if you make it in a in a very authentic way and you really communicate well and you tap people into the human story that you can you can tell any story you want and reach reach an audience hopefully and is that the fun again with feature docs and being a documentarian is that there's always going to be stories to tell yeah yeah no no end to them (laughs) 